Hello, and welcome to another edition of Jaffa Cakes with Proust. Joining myself, Gaddy, is... Mr. Tiltaraisa. Do we want to address the BBC DVD slash store slash America shaped elephant in the room straight away? Because I think that some people might be just a tad cynical that we're talking about this uh, like the, the day before it comes out on DVD and in the cinemas and so on. So let's be honest, yeah, yeah we're, we're taking advantage of timings and what have you by talking about Doctor Who on this Well, no, this weekend. is what happened was, I've been over this before, but we taken much longer to come back from our summer break than intended. So I thought, let's do a Doctor Who. It's a way of getting people to notice us, and I know many of our listeners liked hearing us talk about Doctor Who the first two times we did it. So that was the suggestion on the table. And then it was, well, we could do the web planet. We kind of stumbled on the web planet. I thought, well, let's do the 10th planet, because that's interesting. And around about the time we were talking about this, it suddenly comes out, Power of the Daleks. It's going to be animated. Our advantage when we're talking about Doctor Who is your lack of experience with the show, your lack of investment to a certain extent. Yes, you've watched The Five Doctors, but in terms of actually sitting up and paying attention to Doctor Who, it's only ever been William Hartnell. There are stories you watched that we hadn't talked about. You watched The Time Meddler. I wanted you to watch The Time Meddler so you could come to it cold and not have it spoiled for you, because I figured the more you watch Doctor Who, people are going to start asking you questions and mentioning things, and you're not going to be able to come to some of these stories pure. So, in a way, William Hartnell is the Doctor. What an excellent opportunity to watch, in a manner of speaking, the first Patrick Chowton story and get your reaction. There's also inbuilt disadvantages to this approach. You haven't really seen Patrick Troughton until we finish watching Power of the Daleks and we watch the first, the earliest two surviving live-action episodes, parts two and three of Underwater Menace, to give you a full sense, because I think you lose a lot in the animation. Not that William Hartnell is not a fantastic actor, and we like him a lot, but he's less dependent on small changes of expression to get his characterization across than Patrick Troughton is. Patrick Troughton's face moves a lot. Take that away from him, you've taken away a good chunk of his performance. Well, shall we briefly talk about the animation side of things and, and just tick that box? Because we're not going to focus on that too much, but we're just going to discuss that briefly. The version that's just come out, it's been on the BBC Store for the last couple of weeks. It airs on BBC America tomorrow, if you listen to this podcast on the day it came out. That's the same day that it airs in some cinemas, uh, including in the US, and also the day it comes out on DVD. However, a little bit of controversy with the DVD, because before the DVD came out, they then announced it's going to come out on Blu-ray next year, and it's going to be in 625 line colour. 1080p colour. Ho ho. With a 5.1 soundtrack and all that kind of fanciness. So I think that might have upset a few people who had pre-orders for the DVD. Because they're sort of thinking, well, yes, but it was wait. announced in time to cancel the pre-orders. Do you not think that that's not right, though? Do you not think that they should have waited the day after all the pre-orders have been <laughs> sent out and you couldn't get oh. a refund on them, and then then tell people, hey, hey, guess what, everybody, do it like that Coronation Street. Remember that Coronation Street special that they released on video, and they said, hey, this isn't going to be on telly, and then everybody bought it, and then they put it on telly, and then it led to a lawsuit. Yes, don't imitate behaviour that has led to lawsuits. Well, I suppose, yeah. But anyway, so we, we've watched the half dozen episodes. We didn't wait for colour. Yeah, the, the animation is what it is. We're not really judging Have this. you ever played Simpsons Tapped Out? No. 
It looked like that sometimes. You know the times when people walked and they turned around and by turning around they just basically flipped. <laughs> like somebody pressed flip horizontal in Photoshop. I don't want to run down the animation because apparently they started this in April and were still working on this until very, very recently. So it's not to blame the animators, but whose idea was this? I mean, clearly somebody thought this would be a fun thing to do for the 50th anniversary. I'm guessing the Dad's Army stripe for Fraser did really well. But, boy, you couldn't give him a bit more lead-in time? Well, one thing that does look very impressive uh, in the animation uh, are the Daleks themselves. Uh, they look fabulous in HD. And I think you pointed out yourself, it's easier to capture their movement, really. Any road up, it allows us to enjoy the story, which has been audio-only for all these years. And I personally would have been quite happy if they just had an audio-only version and brought in Andrew Sachs to narrate the bits that we couldn't see. Because as far as I'm concerned, that's a standard method. Uh, well, they already did that. Not with Andrew Sachs. It's been done twice. Has it? Yes, there was a cassette with the missing bits, visual bits, narrated by Tom Baker in character. So he's he's talking about how this is the first time I regenerated and making little asides. And then later, uh, it was came out on, on CD, and I think the narration there was done by Annika Wills, Polly. But that's not done in character. That was a new policy. It was decided, I think all of the soundtracks are available on CD, out of print CDs that are very expensive now in some cases, but narrated and narrated by somebody who was a cast member of the thing, but the policy was they are done as descriptions of what is happening on screen. They are not in-character narrations, no matter who's doing it. And actually, that let, let, me, let me bring that to something. When I was doing my big Doctor Who watch with my wife, again, had no particular background with the show, reacted to things anew. She didn't make enough observations to do any kind of like imitation of Neil Perryman's Wife in Space. I did jot down some notes of just occasional things that my wife said that were surprising. Like at one point thinking that there was foreshadowing that Barbara was pregnant. It's like, no, it's, it's not that kind of show. So when it came to change over from Hartnell to Trout, and we didn't have this animation to call upon, I just did, I just knocked together some stuff. I got some telesnap reconstructions and I overlaid a little bit of the Annika Wills narrated version just to give it the opening moments of the regeneration, then we went straight to, I think straight to Tomb of the Sidemen. I don't think we watched any of the orphaned episodes. So, the narration saying about how the clothes that the Doctor's wearing. By the way, did you notice that, Gary? His clothes regenerated with him? Yes. But there's this line about how the cloak hangs loose off the little man. And my wife goes, but hang on a minute, he's the same height as William Hartnell. And William Hartnell was built like a grasshopper. <laughs> it's the first time I've ever heard anybody sort of comment on the fact that Patrick Trout is actually slightly beefier than William Hartnell. He's not shrunk. So, what did you think of Patrick Troughton as compared to William Hartnell? What do you think of the second Doctor? Yeah, I like I like the second Doctor. I, I think I don't really have, in all honesty, I don't really have strong opinions about whether I prefer one to the other. It's more that... I enjoyed William Hartnell's performance and enjoyed Patrick Troughton's performance. And I suppose if I was to carry on watching Doctor Who throughout the years, eventually I'd probably stumble across a Doctor Who that maybe I wasn't as keen on as others. But right now, as far as these two chaps are concerned, I really don't have 
any big disagreement with them. So yeah, it was pretty much a seamless transition as far as I was concerned. Apart from all that flute playing business, and perhaps there's a reason why he does that, that we're going to find out later on. It's I said the flute into a recorder. Oh, oh yeah, though, yeah, you used to dip them in the, in the... You haven't really brought a recorder, have you? Is that an actual live recorder you've got there? Yes, unfortunately, it's one of those... It's, it's like the one that Doctor Who uses, a little tiny one. I left my tenor recorder in Bradford. I used to have a tenor recorder, and trust me, playing the recorder helps you think. But really, I think you should carry around a full-size tenor recorder. I think your thoughts are bigger with one of those. Harp. That's what you should have. And it's always... It's actually... It's not just that he takes it everywhere he goes, but it's usually the cause of all the problems that they then face. I want to drag this bloody thing behind them at all times. I am on the haunts of a dilemma somewhat here. There are things I could be telling you that are interesting that many of the listeners would already know. Ah, go on. Just, just spill it. Go on. Patrick Troughton had a wig made. He had a Harpo Marx wig made. Oh. That's the story I've heard. Patrick Troughton didn't want to be Doctor Who. There's a little list somewhere of people who... I mean, Brian Blessed claims he was approached, and some people have cast doubt on Brian Blessed's story. My wife, about ten minutes in, immediately said William Mervyn should be doing this. My wife's favourite Doctor Who story is an episode of Mr. Rose. She watched one and she went, that was the best Doctor Who story I've ever seen. (laughs) But they kept coming back to Patrick Troughton and he did the old actor's trick of asking for too much money and they said yes so then it's like well that's a lot of money I could get a lot done so he agreed to it but then there's the whole thing of trying to avoid typecasting being too recognised all the fans are now reciting this along with me they know what's coming next there was the possibility of him doing it in shall we call it tan face doing a kind of Middle Eastern thing one of the ideas that was going around, and in one version of the story I've heard he actually costume tested for this, was a windjammer captain. So effectively putting him in a 19th or 18th century naval uniform. And one version of the story is is that he's brought to Sidney Newman, Mr. BBC Drama, and they say, what do you think? And he said, what happened to the cosmic hobo? And so the idea is, well, let's dress him in something similar to William Hartnell, but shabbier. He's not really meant to be wearing a significantly different costume. He's actually meant to be wearing William Hartnell's outfit, but they're not that bothered about getting it too precise, so he's suddenly wearing a claw hammer coat instead of a just a long-cut jacket, and he's got those pants. Oh, the pants is another thing. There was a feeling that his pants were too baggy, and he was very attached to the baggy pants, so apparently the stories that they were being taken in an inch a week... <laughs> And then, I think after about eight weeks, they're just like, oh, we've got a new pair for you. And the hat, got this kind of Paribas hat that looks like somebody sat on. He was very attached to the hat, and I think they threw it away. Hat's gone! You're not wearing the hat anymore! (laughs) Don't ask about the hat. And I've heard this thing, that he turned up to a rehearsal or a makeup test or a costume test, and he (laughs) opened this bag, and inside there was a blonde to red curly wig like Harpo Marx, and it was just like, no. The story of a hoodie, Annika Wills just went, I'm not working with you if you wear that. Just give me a comb, and she gave him this Beatles do. That's an interesting bit of wardrobe slash makeup. 
the Doctor, this old figure, this wise traveller in time, has a really modern haircut. A man like that with a Beatles haircut, it says something about him. Something has slightly changed. So the, the comments that are often made about how he's just so much more anarchic and he's less grumpy and less authoritarian. But remember when we're watching The Romans, I said if Patrick Troughton had replaced William Hartnell partway through series two, would have been less of a night and day change. What do you think about that? Yes, because in The Romans, it was Hartnell was giddy. He was really enjoying the role and he was having fun with it. And so, yeah, I can see that. Whereas you said to me off air that, that by the time that Hartnell was replaced, perhaps he was slightly more cantankerous and, and a little bit more editable. And so, yes, it does seem as if we've reverted back to the Romans' Doctor Who when Troughton comes in. One thing I said to yourself while we were watching the episodes is I think that Troughton probably benefits from not so much being the focus of attention when it comes to this first story because we, we watched the, the trailer that comes with the, the pack, the, the BBC trailer saying tomorrow, Doctor Who, new story, so on and so on. And the focus of that trailer is not, hey, look, the Doctor looks different and so on, in case you missed last week's. It's an old foe has returned and all your attention is directed towards the Daleks. So, of course, we've got the Doctor acting differently, looking differently, his companions trying to work out what's going on with him, this funny recorder business, if you want to give it another two, now this is the opportunity to do so. Whereas, as time goes on in the episode, we're focusing more and more and more on these innumerable Daleks and wondering, what are they up to? So I think that perhaps Troughton benefits from that. Whereas the two episodes of the underwater larking about that we were looking at to, to, to have an, a look at actually Troughton himself. Here's a strange analogy for you, because it's coming out on DVD anyway, so might as well reference it. Everybody knows the story about early Morgan and Wise at ATV. They were effectively extras in their own show, right at the outset. And then there was industrial action, and they ended up basically being, by and large, the only two people on the screen. And that's what then sort of made them, in a way. That they, they got away from Go, all these... Keep going. Explain why, though. It's because of the union they were with. Didn't Grade call them into their office and just say, right, which union are you with? They, they, you know, they were music hall performers or variety performers, whereas this would have been an equity strike. So it would have been actors, extras, who couldn't appear. So there's no sort of strike breaking or anything like that going on. But it, it gave them the chance then to step out from their own crowd scene and, and be the, the centre of attention. Now, in that underwater larking about whatever it's called. There's a lot of people in that, but they're not the Daleks. So, okay, you've got lots of coal miners running around. Don't, don't forget to tell people what you said to me before we started watching that. What did I tell you? I said, there'll be fish people in this. And you said, do they do an extended interpretive oh. dance? <laughs> and I said, have you watched this before? And you thought that was a joke. I was like, no, seriously. No, when when you said, oh, there's going to be fish people, and I don't know why, I was actually thinking of one of those TV carry-on programs and how there's an odd bit in which Teddy Scott and Ben and Bressel and the rest suddenly do this bizarre little dance routine dressed as schoolgirls and how it doesn't quite fit the narrative of this um, interpretation of A Christmas Carol. This just suddenly jumps into my head and I just suddenly thought, the first time you see the fish people, they should just do a little dance routine and it goes on for five minutes and you're left there scratching your head thinking, what the hell was that all about? And yeah, you were astonished. You thought I had inside information. 
but I'm sort of losing the plot of what I was saying. But what I was saying was, okay, Daleks are going to draw your attention to them away from everybody else, including a new Doctor. All of these extras appearing in the underwater menace, there's lots of them and it means less screen time for the Doctor, but they don't draw your attention away. When the Doctor comes back on, you're focused on him. You're not thinking, what's that lot up to that we'll just see it on the screen a minute ago? So I think that having the power of the Daleks as the first story for Troughton probably works for him because it eases him in. And you get used to him without him having to sort of carry the whole thing. And then, Underwater Menace, and presumably what's then going to follow on from then on, uh, you're already used to him. So by the time he becomes the, the main focus, the centre of attention, then it's no big clunking gear change. You want to talk about unusual comparisons? You, when you said, oh, what are they up to? It just made me think of, there, there is that bit where Ben looks at the new Doctor, or is he the Doctor, and goes, what's he up to now? So it reminded me of them next door from the day to day. <laughs> I don't think we can top that. I think we're in an intellectual dead end now. I don't, I don't think we're going to have to back up. Polly! Last time we were talking about Doctor Who, and I said, well, the thing about Polly is that she's she's not just one of these people who puts the kettle on and asks daft questions. She's her own character. And then you sort of pointed out that actually she is. And then you said to me when we were watching this that you might be sort of coming around to my way of thinking. Now, bear in mind that my way of thinking was, was clearly inaccurate. And I don't know, it must have been just something in one particular scene where I got that impression of her. And I've not had the same breadth of Doctor Who viewing as you've had. Well, here's the thing. Yes, my opinion, Polly, is partially from watching the episode clips, and it gives that impression. And then I went off and crunched some numbers. Polly is in 40 episodes of Doctor Who. Only 13 of them exist. So already there's a disadvantage of getting a handle on the character. And the other thing is, is that I think unlike any of the previous companions, and unlike most people in the show, particularly Doctor Who and a lot of 60s television, Annika Wills is very low-key in a lot of her line deliveries. She's very naturalistic. And when she isn't low-key, when she reaches the same pitch everybody else is acting at, and this is not a criticism of all acting so much more sophisticated, or there were reasons they acted that way, partially because they're on like 7 to 12-inch screens, partially because there are different levels you can set acting at. Doing a slightly more mannered thing is perfectly legitimate. But the times when she reaches a pitch similar to everybody else is when she's showing fear. So my memory of thinking of Polly is is that she's at the sidelines in the background sometimes just asking a question or crying and screaming. I think if all 40 of those episodes existed, we'd get more of a cumulative effect of that quite naturalistic line delivery. So when she is asking a question, it, it's almost easy to not notice she's there. But there are little bits. There's a story that's missing called The Highlanders where she takes a British Army officer hostage and she shows some grit there. And there's a really nice little bit in Power of the Daleks when the Doctor gets hung up on the words of Lestus and Listen. And she says, go, Lestus and Listen. And she joins in. And there's a nice little bit where they, they bond over <laughs> the words Lestus and Listen. But they're very small things. So I think you're right. She was her own character. But Annika Wills has decided to take it in a naturalistic direction. And So when you lose the majority of her time on the show, it's almost like she fades away a bit. But you still don't like Ben, huh? 
No, how can you like Ben? And obviously somebody else was thinking this because Hootsmon! By the time we get to the next Trouton story, there's a fellow there with a kilt all the way from the wool pack who has turned up and he's saying Ben sort of things but not in a Ben sort of way, if you know what I mean. He's just saying them nicely. He's asking questions. He's not saying, <laughs> you know, what are you, stupid or something? Arthur Daly, he's all right. It is the second story in a row where Ben makes a sarcastic reference to Father Christmas. Yeah, he's got some weird obsession. No, that's characterization. I'm, I think it'd be great if every story there was you'd be, you'd be eventually waiting. When's Ben going to reference Father Christmas? To quote Roger Sloman to Regan and the Sweeney, I swear you've got a thing about Australians. Yeah, definitely Ben has got some sort of hang up. Santa and and who knows maybe there's a Christmas story in which that's all explained that, that you're keeping from me for now maybe we're going to do that as a Christmas special I don't know the point is that next time we've got Fraser Hines with his accent and so somebody must well have that's thought, all we've got time for <laughs> hang on stop no I no, 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 want to no. talk about Power of the Daleks I know let's, but let's no but you were asking me at the end no but you were asking me about Ben that was so... my Carlos Douglas impression from Duty Free now you were asking me about Ben. My response about Ben is that obviously Ben was considered not quite. I was going to say not quite the full shilling. That's not what I'm trying to say. But there was obviously a need to bring not in somebody as, else. As far as I'm aware, it's just it wasn't that they didn't like Michael Craze. They just liked Fraser Hines. And it's only eventually that it's like this isn't quite working out. And also they brought Fraser Hines in so quickly that episodes are going out without enough lines for him. So he's being sidelined, or he's he's sick for this, and then Ben's having to share out lines and take other people's lines. Which must be hell for establishing a character. I mean, in Ben's second story, he's got some of the Doctor's lines for an episode. I think it's in a story called The Moon Base where there's some of this chomping up of lines, and Ben suddenly becomes a scientist. He He has a bit of chemistry knowledge that I think kind of got lifted from another character because Jamie gets some of Ben's lines. Ben doesn't have enough lines. Right, let's take some lines from this character and give those to Ben. And then Ben's character starts... He's he's meant to be a working-class sailor who is, I think, faintly aware of the chemical composition of nail varnish remover, something like that. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, do you you want to get in on some um, frivolous imaginings? I like frivolousness. Let's have some of that. What happens to Ben after he leaves? Well, he's in the Navy, didn't you say? Yes. I'm suddenly thinking. I've just got this Im- imagining this idea where his officers, the couple of officers are talking about, um, Abel Seaman Jackson, yeah. Have you noticed he suddenly seems a hell of a lot more intelligent since he's been on shore leave? Uh, and his reactions are quicker. Uh, he seems a little more nervous than before, but it's, it's it's almost like it's almost like he's been fighting for two years. Various terrible things. He hasn't lost that weird Christmas obsession. If anything, it's washed now. Again, I'm just speculating whether Ben would have shot up the ranks suddenly. You know, after fighting Cybermen and Daleks and Fish and Jamie. He's suddenly going to be a bit more capable. He's going to be quicker thinker, quicker reactor, better planner. Right. Are you saying that you want to see a spin-off of Ben? Just maybe like a two-hander play between two officers. You know, the file on Seaman Jackson. 
then an officer and a gentleman. Well, yeah, I suppose. I mean, if you want to write this as fan fiction, plug it on the Twitter feed. One advantage of watching this animation is it can highlight things in the soundtrack. And there's a nice little bit in this. I'd never heard it before, and yet there it is. It will have been in the soundtrack, but it's less noticeable. When the governor of the colony comes in, at some point we're going to have to maybe go through this plot. The governor of the colony comes in, and Ben addresses him as governor, and then goes, Governor. Because he addresses everybody as governor. It's the first time in his life he's got to address a governor. (laughs) And he seems mildly surprised and delighted. Now, what if he'd ever met up with Bill Maynard as a gaffer? Would he have made an exception then? Not too much of a transition, is it? He's a cockney. He doesn't speak Polari. He's not Batman. I rocker the jib, Toby. Who's your gaffer? <laughs> it's an interesting approach, though. It seems obvious in retrospect. If you've grown up watching Doctor Who and he used to... Uh, Doctor regenerates and he's thrashing about. He's unstable. And they take that approach here. They didn't have to. What's to stop them just having him explain, saying, oh, it just happens every couple of hundred years? Are we getting into plot and pacing devices now? We've had this conversation many a time on the sitcom club about how a character can get out of trouble immediately by simply stating something which otherwise is kept quiet. Uh, And if they just said this right now, if they just come out with this and tell the truth or just this little bit of explanation would solve all of this ensuing problem. But no, I mean, yeah, okay, the Doctor could say that. But this is the first time that decisions had to have been taken. It's a six-episode story. Have they decided, let's get some padding in really early? If they'd said, right, we're going to start him off on a four-episode story, I have a feeling he might have just sat up and said, yeah, it just happens. Right, let's go. (laughs) So time to talk about there's a retcon that's alluded to and then never followed up on. There's a few points where the Doctor says... Wasn't the one where he says that there's something he can't quite remember, and then he goes, I know the misery the Daleks cause. Supposedly in early drafts, we're meant to find out that the Doctor fled his home planet as part of a galactic war that was caused by the Daleks, which is a massive retcon. I don't know if the whole, oh, I can't quite remember, is meant to somehow... No, I don't think they thought in those terms. Three years is a million years. Nobody's going to remember the first time he saw a Dalek. He had no idea what it was. And I don't think Amnesia's meant to be a way of blurring over that. But that never gets followed through. But there seem to be a few hints. It's not just the fact that he's had constant fights with the Daleks that's setting him off. He's actually had direct encounters on his home turf with Daleks. Okay, well, shall we, in the course of discussing the plot for this... Shall we avoid any conclusion? Spoilers. Because let's face it, a lot of people are going to be watching this in the next few days. So there's no need for us to actually talk about the entire finish of the story if anybody who's never heard it before. No, I think we can. I think we can actually talk about the ending. The Daleks lose and the Doctor wins. They all end like that. You say that, but I did say to you, and it was only partially in jest. It wasn't. It was completely in jest. But I said to you before we watched episode 6, okay, let's find out how these Daleks get defeated. Or maybe they won't. Maybe they will just take over the colony and, indeed, the the solar system. I I mean, who knows? I don't know. Because maybe this was going to lead into another story or something like that. I have no idea. So maybe you could have a story, a block, which ends on a downer, and you think, oh, God, how on earth is is, is that the conclusion? But it's actually planting a seed for a future story. It's going to come back. 
later on and everything's going to be okay. They'd, they'd kind of already done that. There's a story called the Dalek Master Plan or the Daleks Master Plan. And that pretty much ends with everybody except the Doctor and Stephen are dead. Every, everybody's dead. Well, the Daleks didn't take anything over, but there's not really enough left to take over now. Anyway, I'm off. Enjoy Jukebox Jewelry. I'm cross-fertilising shores there a bit. Yeah, but but that's all right. All right, well, if we're going to talk about the whole thing... So the setting on the planet Vulcan, and it's some sort of colony, there was a part where this suddenly struck me as resembling another TV show. I don't think by design, and I don't even necessarily think by subconscious influence. I just think it was by things that were happening. Because everybody's wearing short-sleeved shirts and V-necks. And there's Mercury there, so I guess we're meant to take it's a hot planet. It reminded me of Red Cap with John Thor. Frequently he has to go to... They're no longer colonies, we're in post-colonial Britain, but he has to go to some hot place where the British army there meant to be keeping the peace and investigate a mystery. Because there is a, a murder mystery running through part of this story. And so I'm thinking maybe the audience would have responded a bit differently... It's not just a space colony in the space future. The idea of British people in a hot place trying to look after things is something that's just in the news. And the reason I'm not bringing in direct comparisons is because I'm too stupid. Every time I watch a red cap, it's like, so what were we doing there? And who hated us? And why did they hate us? And what was happening? Because there's this thing running through about the rebels. It's like, so have they colonised... An unpopulated planet. Or are the Merbles meant to be the natives of Vulcan? Or There's something there that doesn't quite get explored, or maybe I wasn't paying attention. But there's this interesting thing running through it. I mean, if you want to get political, because, I mean, H.G. Wells in The War of the Worlds was all about imperialism. How would you like it if some guys with better technology turned up in your neck of the woods and said, this is nice, we've got bigger guns, this all belongs to us now? If you want to over-politicise, is there a comparison to be made about Daleks and imperialism. I think that point has probably been made. I've noticed a couple of people tweeting over the past week. They're actually tweeting about other people reading undercurrents into the story. And I suppose if you're absolutely determined, you can read anything into any text. Coming at this from position of ignorance, as you already established. But when we watched the the bees the other week, right, and there was all sorts of stuff going on about here's the bees and here's the what were they? Ants? So, okay, so you had all that business going on with the two of them button heads and saying this is ours, no it isn't, yes it is no it isn't, and all this kind of stuff whereas it could be in this instance that there's been some sort of hostile takeover going on on Vulcan, but we're not really going to focus on that bit. So it might be, for example, that, yeah, there is some funny business going on, and now it's the people who originally sort of took over the place who are now under threat themselves, but that's not really what we want to concentrate on. We want to concentrate on those pesky Daleks. You see, cause... I, I didn't think... It was not a matter of thinking that David Whittaker's writing a political parable or a criticism of imperialism or a criticism of certain kinds of imperialism and certain kinds of imperialism are completely fine or anything like that. It's just associations between what you're seeing on screen what's happening in the world outside at the time might cause the story to play out differently 
in the minds of the audience. It looks in some ways familiar. So that's what I mean. It's just because you could bend it to mean anything, any political message you want can be derived from any story. But I don't think Red Cap was still running in November of 66. But if you've watched all of Red Cap and now you're watching Murder Mystery in a Colony, you're going to react in a certain way. Some of it's familiar and it might tap into some of your fears or hopes for what's happening in the world. When you say it taps into your fears and hopes, do you reckon there's anybody watching this who's actually on the side of the Daleks? It's not a matter of people being on the side of the Daleks. It's like, right, we know the Daleks are the baddies. And we know there's the bad, there's the human baddies. Where you want to start bringing discussions in is, how much are the human non-baddies like the Daleks in ways they don't realise? And nobody's consciously necessarily thinking that. But you're thinking... How much do you want to preserve the spoiler thing? Right. Mr. Human Betty is very much like a Dalek, but the whole system is a little bit like Daleks. Or is it? If they landed on an unpopulated world. I just got to cut back on the eggnog coffees, really. It's making my brain overwork. <laughs> hey, enjoy them while you can. Am I right in thinking that these are... Oh, it's all seasonal, yes. Yeah, they're seasonal, aren't they? I just want to talk about the fact there's a Dalek wandering around naked at the end of episode one. And what what are they doing there? <laughs> Why is there a naked Dalek wandering around? Well, is he not one of the half-built ones that they're up to downstairs in the laboratory? But why is he wandering around? <laughs> they're just testing these components. He's got no components. He's, got, he's not inside a Dalek. He's just a mutant. And for some reason, he, decide, he decides to go for a walk around the capsule and then it's like, oh there's some people here run, scuttle, scuttle, scuttle maybe that's what he was doing, maybe he was a lookout and he's going to report back to the Daleks, he's going to say Oi, there's, there's a few of them sniffing about here they're on to us, quick like in the League of Gentlemen you know, where the policeman comes around it's like, right, okay, we better get a move on here Yeah, but he's completely unprotected there's already three fully built Daleks in there, they just need power why are they inside there? If it's better off to stay inside a depowered Dalek, that's one thing. And then one of them's wandering around with no Dalek around him. It's just for the sake of a, a resting visual, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, surely he can get into like little nooks and crannies that are bloody big. Even then why don't they all Dalek get out of their Dalek machines? Because they need the Dalek uh, infrastructure. They need the Dalek coats. Well, do so does he then? Business, don't they? No, 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 no. The mutant can, can look This is around. like going to a nudist colony where some people are wearing suits of armor. And you're thinking, what? what? It's like going to a medieval battlefield and there's a couple of naked guys. It's like, yeah, we find that they move a bit faster. No, right, okay, right, right. No, stop, 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 stop. stop. The mutant can just be the lookout. He's taking an awful risk, though. Doctor Who could have stepped on him. Squish! There. And then taken that out to. Uh, Lesterson knows and said, look at that. See, that's what's inside there. But they're soulless creatures, Daleks. They don't care. If the mutant happens to get stepped on, so be it. But they'll, they'll take that risk, right? But the point is that the mutant does not need all of his Dalek armory to be able to see what's going on. But if they're then going to destroy the people that they've spotted with the, the mutant looking out, 
then they need to have the full kit on, don't they? Are you arguing from conviction or just because you like an argument? No, I'm arguing from absolute conviction. And I also I agree with you that it makes an arresting visual. So if you can get you that as well. have pictures then... of naked Daleks in your No, I don't want to room. talk about what photographs of, of Daleks uh, dressed or otherwise that I have. And, you know, really, I think we're missing the big issue here, which uh, we, we can work out what it is and then go into that rapidly. I don't see the problem with the mutant Daleks just having a little bit of a wonder. I mean, what's the issue? But they're not doing any harm, are they? They're just wandering around. Just Daleks like... always do harm. No, but not the wee jellyfish. It just seems like versions. a bit sloppy. It just seems a bit sloppy to go for a wonder. It seems inconsistent, but he just, he just must be the weird Dalek. Like Frank, Frank's casing's empty. He's out again. We, we talked to him about this. Frank, what do you possibly hope to gain? Going outside of your casing. and It's just sweaty in there. I don't like it. Yeah, but you're always going to get in this situation. If you've got like a group of people and what have you, and you say to everybody, look, don't do this, right? There's always going to be somebody who goes and does it, isn't there? It's just... I was going to say that's human nature, but we're not talking about humans, we're talking about Daleks. No, okay, no, listen, I, I don't see the problem. I think that I think I've been really harsh on Little Mutant Dalek. If he wants a wee wonder, he can have a wee wonder. You can't be harsh on a Dalek. They're just monsters. They're just pure evil. Uh, well, now I think you've made your own point yourself there unwittingly. You said not mere moments ago... You have no idea how s- insulting that is? Unwittingly I've made a point? Well, my dog that walks on its hind legs. Oh, well done. Now listen, right. You said not mere moments ago, and everybody heard it, and everybody's thinking it, so they want me to say it. You said, ah, okay, the Daleks, they're, they're the evil ones, but, hmm, those humans, are they maybe closer to Daleks than you might think? Are they, are they, would they act like Daleks if they had the chance? And what did you just go and say there just now? All oh, those Daleks, they're horrible, soulless creatures. You can't trust them. They should all be stamped out like cockroaches. Look, you've just gone and adopted a Dalek point of view yourself. You didn't even realise you'd done it. There you go. So you've that's made your own point. No, that's like, why are you so intolerant of my intolerance? <laughs> Daleks just kill. That's what they are. They are therefore killing everything that's not a Dalek. You, you, you're not, you're not, you're not preaching peace here. Really, the, the, with this, with this one-sided attitude that you're coming out with towards the Daleks, we're never going to have harmony, are we? Really, going to be a bit give and take on both sides. Come on. So, yeah, just contrarianism, not conviction. <laughs> so, th- I've just got another bit of Ben's complaining. When somebody addresses the doctor, examiner, you seem to be in two minds. And Ben goes, yeah, and two bodies. It's a bit resentful, isn't he, sometimes? But is, is he the voice of sanity? <laughs> no, he's the voice of the youth of 1966 who won a damn good clout around the year old. The standards have been slackened by this point. For, for a few years now, since that Bill Haley fella, he started it, and now we're getting to the point where people like Ben think he can just say whatever he wants, and a good I was going to say a good dose of salt, a good couple of years in the army, good lot of national service, that would sort him out that's what he wants, wouldn't be so blippy then, would he? He's in the navy, he's already disciplined. Now there's an interesting practical aspect hanging over the whole mystery because I believe the first drafts, there is this whole thing. It gets very quickly dealt with, this whole, yes, I've changed. I think at one point he says, I am Doctor Who, which would have caused much wailing and gnashing of teeth in certain quarters to hear him refer to himself that way. I think there was a character guy that was going to say, oh, he has a sharp, black sense of humour like Sherlock Holmes. That guy got booted out the window. It's like whenever we talk about recasting, it's like, well, we don't know what would have happened once the ink tries. 
on the contract, the work is not over. Things will get worked up in rehearsal. Decisions will be made, unmade. Your producer is going to see it one way. The actor is going to see it another way. And eventually we might find synthesis. Having all this odd behaviour, refusing to answer a straight question, leaving the question in the minds, not I think of the audience, but of one of the companions. Is he really the Doctor? We've got these lines, the Doctor was a great collector, wasn't he? The Doctor's not even sure if he is the Doctor anymore. He doesn't know what is really happening inside his head. Does he have to find a new name now this has happened? It gives your actor a lot of room to find their level. Some of this stuff, it gives him a chance to try stuff out and then you can drop it. Oh, he's stabilised. He's not going to play the recorder quite as much. It'd be, if this is ever found, and then they can sell it to everybody all over again. Because I, I didn't spot this in the animation. Maybe I wasn't paying attention. Supposedly there's a bit in one episode where the Doctor is sitting down, gets up to move out of the room, and the chair remains fixed to his backside. There are a few things they tried in those early episodes that later got dropped. There's the love of disguises. It doesn't quite become a characterist, but there are two stories where he uses the line, I should like a hat like that. I'm almost wondering if it's not actually there put in there because, well, let's give Patrick a chance to work out which bits of his performance work. It's almost like, let's put this in because we don't necessarily know how where he's going to take it now. He's going to start behaving. I don't mean that Patrick Troughton was like an uncontrollable actor, but I understand he he liked to put a different read on every line until he found one he liked in rehearsal. Later on, there's the story, The Three Doctors, and John Pertwee was tearing his hair out because Patrick Troughton was not giving the same performance twice because that's how he did it. That, that is interesting. I do like to read about tensions between actors in instances like that. Well, it's not necessarily tensions. I'm not necessarily talking about massive arguments. But two actors with very different methods can start throwing each other off their game. I always do this anyway, so I might as well do it now. Recasting idea You've got for one. Who. You've got one, and it has to be for 1966. Okay, fair enough. Right, okay. It's a little bit left field, but it is a serious suggestion. And I don't think I've made the suggestion before. Okay. You ready for this? Jimmy Edwards. Now, something that was said when whoever blew the gaff on Michael Horden being considered said that Michael Horden would have played it a bit officerish. I can see that with Jimmy Edwards. Jimmy Edwards is the kind of person you pick if you think what people really like about the Doctor is his irascibility and his tendency to bark. I think he might have become a bit one-note, though. I'm not sure that he, he would have been able to get the same affection from the audience. About three... Yeah, yeah, it was the 50th anniversary of the show, about three years ago. I remember a mild kerfuffle happening amongst some friends when the late Terry Pratchett talked about Doctor Who and said of Peter Davison, at last we had a Doctor Who could act. And I understand why he might have made that point, but I think he's not seeing the wood for the trees. I think Peter Davison's somebody who can find his level quite easily. But you can be somebody who needs a lot of direction and still be a fantastic actor. Because there's always the worry that you'll find an acceptable level every time, but sometimes you need to be stratospheric. You need the nudging, you need the moulding. And I think 
it's completely unfair to Patrick Troughton because I think Patrick Troughton was an actor that for most of the time we saw was at the peak of his powers. I can understand why somebody might say that about John Pertwee, but that's looking past what kind of actor he really was. He was a comic actor. Doctor is pretty much his only dramatic part of note. But as a comic actor, he was everywhere. How many voices does he do in the Navy log? There are those gatherings of officers and Michael Bates and John Pertwee are trying out different voices. Leslie <laughs> <laughs> Phillips is doing that attempt at a Scottish accent that's not happening. And that becomes part of the joke. He, he rolls with his limits. And, and William Hartnell, I think, is somebody a little too easy to write off. There's more variety in his performance as the Doctor, if you really look at it. And in his career, I think saying that somebody who goes from slimy, dead-eyed, despicable villainy, which is very good at in a few films in the 40s, going to have to do some of his crime films next year, to the gruff sergeant major in the 50s, to this half-twinkly, half-irascible grandfather figure in the 60s. That's an actor. That is a full-range actor. What was my point? I had it around here somewhere. I want to mention one particular actor who's in this story, and that's uh, Robert James as Lesterson. Lesterson, listen. Now, I was racking my brains the whole time, as I usually am with these things, trying to think, I know that face, I've seen that face before, where have I seen that face? And as it turned out, it, I recognised him as the doctor in Steptoe Son, when Albert is upstairs in bed. It is difficult, again, sort of assessing a performance from the animated first, but he's good in this, isn't he? He's got the tone just right. You can tell from early on that he is somebody who's invested in this plan for the Daleks. He is not somebody who's made of steel. But he's going to put his foot down and he's going to say, no, no, I've put a lot of work into this and full steam ahead and and here we go and let's not hear anybody talking down this wonderful plan of ours. And then, of course, because he's not made of steel, when it backfires on him, he goes completely off the rails, goes to pieces. And it's, it's like you can see this coming. You know how this is going to end for him. He's not somebody who would have any truck with falling in with the Daleks, thinking that he could get on their side or anything like, like this, when he realizes exactly what they're up to. And instead of just putting his hands up and saying, yeah, my bad, you know, mistake, he just, yeah, he goes completely crackers. And yeah, you, again, you can, you can see it coming, you know it's coming, but it's absolutely pitch perfect when this happens. Are you familiar with Isaac Asimov's Laws of Robotics? You, did, you didn't really even need to finish that sentence, did you? I mean, I think you knew. Look, there's patronising you for a joke, and then there's actually treating you like some sort of half-educated boob. When you get halfway through the, the first part of his surname, that was the point at which you really sort of thought, yeah, I should just stop there, shouldn't I? It's not like I was asking you, do you have a lot of bong water Because it might have been that you it's were going to say... like something completely outré. Because when you said Isaac, it might have been that you were going to say Newton. And you were going to say, you know how Isaac Newton uh, was sitting around on an apple fell on his head and he said, ah, right, yeah, I would go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I might be getting the odd detail here or there wrong, but... Well, you've seen that Will Smith film, I, Robot? No, I, I haven't. Popular. I know, I know, I know right. somebody who saw that and she was giving me a, a, a more detailed explanation of the, the shower scene with Will Smith than I actually wanted. But no, I haven't seen the film, but I'm aware of it. So it's a robot may not injure a human... Or through inaction allow human to come to harm. 
of robot must obey orders given by human beings, except where such orders conflicts with the first law. A robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first and second laws. A scout is always clean of metal. No, hang on a minute. That's uh, <laughs> that's a goodies episode. So this is in the U.S. Constitution, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Isaac Asimov never wrote any stories about Angela Rip and Suspender Belt. <laughs> There's just a bit in this where the Dalek disobeys an order, but he says, well, the order was bad. He's told to power down, and then he doesn't. And that's meant to be the first clue. I, I'm just wondering if that's a deliberate thing, if the more science fiction aware people are supposed to think, he broke one of the laws. Lesterson, didn't you read your Asimov? And Lesterson said, I've been reading my Asimov all day. <laughs> You're ripping these trousers. Um, Because he then says, doesn't he say, hey, look, he's actually got, like, he's got mind, he's got, like, you know, free will and what have you. This is incredible. This is the point at which he should have been saying, save yourselves. And then everybody runs out the door. He doesn't see that. He doesn't spot that. Because he's too attached to his his lovely little plan. I want my tower. (laughs) This is the most day-to-day relevant (laughs) Doctor Who story. And there's another later bit where the Dalek goes, why do human beings kill other human beings? They're sarky little devils, aren't they? I am your servant. I mean, sarky Daleks. Maybe that's Ben's problem. He's being out-snarked. Yes, yeah, because he can't out-snark a Dalek. And also, if the Daleks had hosted that 1960 BBC TV special... Sorry, did you say he can't out-snark a Dalek? Because I thought you said something more 60s, which is, he comes out snarkadelic. <laughs> the snarkadelic Flintstones comedy show. No, if that 1960 BBC TV special had been hosted by the Daleks and they just kept on saying, we are your servants, would it have had the same impact? It would have had an impact, but not necessarily the one they were looking for. That is one of the cliffhangers, the Daleks saying, we are your servants, and when they come back, they're still saying it. And you've got the, Have they been there a week? <laughs> Just listening to it. Well, that's the kind of thing you get with Buster Crab and what have you, isn't it? You're supposed to wonder, has he been in that perilous situation since the last time you were at the pictures? Yeah, I remember my dad trying to convince me that Buck Rogers had died. The thing collapsed and he went, he's dead now. I said, if he's dead, why is there going to be an episode on BBC Two tomorrow night? And he said, that's the funeral. (laughs) Didn't convince me. (laughs) That's brilliant. No, definitely needs to be... More of that kind of thing in drama. I think, I think I'm right in saying, this is not nonsense, I think this actually happened. I think I'm right in saying, it's not my kind of thing, so I didn't, I've never seen it, but Spooks was on about maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, something like that. And a fairly significant character, played by a recognisable actor, is killed in episode two, if I remember correctly. And it just took people aback and they were like, oh, what happened there then? You can't do that. It's breaking all the laws of physics and what have you. But no, more of that kind of thing would be welcome, would it not? Because it would then sort of make you think, well, you don't really know what to expect then. I mean, okay, if you peek at next week's Radio Times cast listing, it tends to give things away. But if you don't, if you can stop yourself from doing that, then surprises are high. So. I can think of an ITV drama where we're leading up to some obvious bad thing that's not happened to this character throughout the entire series. It's like, it's going to happen right at the end. Anti-penultimate episode. Ah! It happened! Hang on a minute, we've got two episodes now to deal with the fallout. Whoa. They should really have that happen in Doctor Who. It's like, right, okay, we all ready? Here's the last story of 
let's say for, for let's say right, Peter Capaldi. We're all ready for his last story. Ten minutes in. Whoa, hang on. This he's not ready yet. This whole situation's been switched up a gear. So moving on from Power of the Daleks, then we watched a bit of the Underwater Menace. Because you remember what I was saying about the Tenth Planet is setting the pattern for the Troughton stories, which is a base under siege, and happens like two times in a row. We land on a place, it's an enclosed community, and there's either something bad out there trying to get in, or something bad in here trying to get all of it destroyed. And we then have a little thrash about. We have the last historical, the Highlanders, which is where they pick up Fraser Hines, who I'm going to have to listen to the soundtrack. The stories I've heard it is once he realises he's going to be in this for the long haul, his accent suddenly vanishes from the Highlands down to the Lowlands because it's easier to do. And that, the, the, the Doctor's out of control. He puts on an accent. He keeps putting on disguises. Again, he does, I should like a hat like that. There's a lot more thrashing. In fact, I would say that he's more out of control than he is in Power of the Daleks. Then we've got The Underwater Menace, a story that nobody really wanted to do. I think the script was submitted. It was, they were getting to a point where it's like, we can't put this on. Let's get something else in its place. And they looked at everything. It's like, we, can't, we haven't got anything else to put in its place. <laughs> Let's put it out. And then the director and the cast had a big fight over, over various choices. And again, we've got, he puts on that disguise. He decides to disguise himself as part fortune teller, part Lenny Peters. And doesn't give us a duet with Polly on Welcome Home, which I think we all wanted. Well, that's, that's a disaster. But what role then would Annoying Ben have played? In that, because he would have been a spare, you know, at the wedding, wouldn't he? Really, I suppose Evan Fraser Hines could have been backing singer. So then, after that, we get the moon base, and there things have started to cool considerably. And there's going to be a lot of Patrick Troughton landing in places. And yes, we're completely closed in here. There's a thing out there. Oh, it's trying to get in. Oh, there's a thing in here, and it's trying to get out and kill us. I'm not saying they're all like that. But there is this point where it's like, it's easy to do, it's got all the thrills, but I imagine it could wear you down if you binge-watched. If you watched a story a night, I imagine it would start to bother you a bit. I want to return to Power of the Daleks for a moment, because I do not wish in any way to come across like Malcolm Muggeridge, for example. However, I did have a problem with the last episode. And I still say it unrepentantly, given that this is a show that's going out before 6 o'clock on a Saturday. This is tea time viewing. At the very, very best, it's family viewing. Realistically, it's still sort of a children's show, really. I thought this last episode was way too violent for a show going out at that time of night. That's not the kind of view that I would have had when I was like, I don't know, uh, 16 or something like that. Probably, I probably wouldn't even have thought about it, but... I'm getting on a bit and what have you. Well, I don't know if it's an automatic thing that you start to think like this, but partly I was just sort of thinking, this is in a kid's viewing slot, and there's just people being massacred left, right and centre, and long lingering shots of dead bodies and so on. Um, I think one of the things that, if you're freaked out by that as a kid, there's a little voice in your head, maybe a little voice in the playground telling you to toughen up. Don't admit to being freaked out. When you're an adult and you're watching something that's meant for children or has significant child appeal, part of you's thinking, am I going to have to start comforting a freaked out infant? Or am I not? And am I going to start worrying about why they're so fine with this? 
I think it was in the 70s, somebody wrote to William Hartnell and asked him why he left. And he said there was just too much, he said there was too much evil in the show. What I think he was talking about wasn't the show at the time of Innes Lloyd, who's producing Power of the Daleks. And we talked about him last time on 10th Planet, reinventing the show for a different science fiction landscape. I think he's talking about the time under the producer John Wiles. He's the one who produces that super downer Dalek story and the super downer historical that follows it. John Wells seems to have a bit of a problem with Doctor Who as it had been up to that point and seems determined to keep grinding away at the audience with despair. John Wells went through, I think, a little bit of a renaissance when people talked about, I mean, you know, stories are actually quite clever and I think he's had a bit of a pushback when it's like the realisation that he came into Doctor Who as produced by Verity Lambert, took it over and had thought it wasn't good enough. So there's always that thing of it thrills and peril and where do you stop and where do you start and is there a way of portraying the same violent act in a way that's not necessarily going to upset the audience in a way it shouldn't be upset to what extent are you getting at them in their living rooms or to what extent are you getting some of the fear and shock out of the way this is fantastic violence it will help you maybe not be quite as horrified when you watch the news but then again are you dulling their senses are they going to become inured to horrible things that they should really feel something about well it's jeff against Proust, and we never have any answers for those questions we make it a point of not having answers for those questions but i, th- I think it's interesting that that struck you I, I did see a few reviews of people saying that the last episode was more visceral. It was the one they hadn't fully understood before, just listening to the soundtracks or watching the reconstructions. I can imagine somebody listening to what we're saying just now and responding to this with, well, what's the big deal? You've already established, you've just said yourself half an hour ago that the Daleks are cold-blooded killers. What do you expect them to be like? That's not understanding what we're saying. Well, the, the, the answer to that is Daleks don't exist. They will do anything we tell them to. Yes, exactly. The Daleks have been written in that manner. But also, and that, that seems like a cheap point, and I hate going down the road of saying, you know this is all just phony, don't you? But sometimes it might just help just to sort of throw that in and remind people of that fact when, when they, they get sort of wound up about this kind of thing. But also, the bigger point is that you could have exactly the same story told and the same outcome told, but it doesn't need to be as graphic. We've got another issue here as well, which is we're not seeing the visuals that were seen at the time. We're not 100% sure of the staging, and this is being made in 2016 for adults. Children might watch it, but it's not being made for children. It was just a bit strange. It's like, oh, they suddenly remember there were meant to be all these people in this colony. The first five episodes felt a little bit too small. There's that bit where the governor goes out to the out to the border. I can't remember the word they use, but he goes out to a different part of the colony, but we only see him out in the colony. We don't get any sense of all the people he's visiting. Uh, So I think that was something that confined the story. The rebels, but the six of them. There was one point, speaking of numbers, and the suggestion that there are more numbers than you can see on the screen. There was one point, I guess this would have been, was it the end of episode three, perhaps? When I said to you, that's a really nice shot they've got of all those Daleks there. How did they do that in the original version? 
and you, you you pulled back the curtain. I was I was quite intrigued by this, and so you explained how they did do this, and there's some nice little trickery going on there, isn't there? When you see the live action sections, yes, photographic blow ups. No, but it wasn't just that though. There was a a scene with lots and lots and lots of Daleks all coming out of a doorway. Oh, everybody knows that story. Yes, I didn't. I didn't. I, I, I... Yes, but that's your that's your role here. But you know what? Your role is done. That I think is it for Doctor Who on Jaffa Kicks for Bruce. Are you actually quoting the Daleks there? Are you saying that I have outlived my usefulness? That I can be dispensed. No, with? I'm saying I think we've done enough Doctor Who on Jaffa Kicks for Proust. If we want to talk about Patrick Troughton being an eccentric time traveller, we can, but we have to go to the Children's Film Foundation for that. Hey. This is not necessarily the last time you and I will talk about Doctor Who, but it will be outside of the colony of Jaffa Cakes of Proust. Well, now you're laying some sort of Simon Bates web of intrigue. Now people are wondering, what's going on? Are we defecting? Are we going somewhere else? We're talking about... Talking about another Doctor Who story, not as part of Jaffa Cakes of Proust, and it is a story that has been mentioned in the past, and I'll say no more about about it, just in case the plans somehow fall through. Next week is Thanksgiving for me here in California. I think Gary's made his own arrangements for his own kind of Thanksgiving. So instead of a full-blown Jaffa Cakes of Proust, see us over on mixcloud.com forward slash sitcom club where we'll be doing a Jaffa Kick jukebox centred around things that we call tele-tracks. They're not theme tunes, but they're bits of music that feature heavily in TV shows. And then in two weeks' time... Well, we're not drifting all that far away from where we've been this week. We'll be in 1966 this week. And we're going to be a little earlier and a little later, but not much. We're going to be looking at the early work of someone who is perhaps a little forgotten about in 2016. This place in comedy history, whilst probably everybody knows his name, a lot of people, particularly sort of millennials and what have you, will really not really have seen any of his work because it doesn't get repeated, bizarrely enough. And this is somebody who was internationally renowned. We're going to be talking about Benny Hill, and we're going to be specifically talking about Benny Hill's BBC work. This isn't for the our eye when we were talking about Christmas Night with the Stars last year. There was a section there with Benny Hill, and it wasn't the Benny Hill that you'd sort of expect to see if you ever saw clips of his Thames TV shows. This got us thinking, how different was Benny Hill at the BBC? Is there a slow transition into the ITV years before he becomes synonymous with Hill's Angels and Dennis Cochran as producer and so on? Does it happen overnight? How does it work out? But nonetheless, Benny Hill's BBC work is quite often held up as innovative, original, and in some ways, groundbreaking. So we're going to be looking at that next week. Benny Hill at the BBC. That's next week's Jaffa Cakes for Proust. In the meantime, if you've got anything at all for us, you can tweet us at Jaffa's for Proust. You can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com. One thing I'll just mention in passing, by the way, if you ever want to leave us a lovely five-star review on iTunes, you can do so. Thank you very much to the person who did just that. So, yeah, if you ever want to do that, that's absolutely fine. That's great. That bumps us up the rankings, what have you, and all that kind of thing. We're going to be here every Friday until the end of the year. So, keep in touch with us. And in the meantime, of course, you can find all manner of other podcasts at podnose.com as well. Over 800 of them. So, Tilt. And this is Gary saying thank you very much indeed for listening to Doctor Who for Proust. 